Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air. Thank you for choosing this podcast um, to listen to. I really appreciate it. Today's show, I'm honored to have a writing, a co- actually a comedy writing pair that are branching out and are stretching their wings a little. And they have a film uh, called Judas and the Black Messiah. It's about uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton, who was the leader of the Chicago wing of the Black Panther Party back in 1969, and the informant, the FBI informant, who aided and assisted in that assassination. And it's a fascinating movie, and I talked to those guys about it. It's a really good conversation. A really talented duo. They appeared on my show, The Nightly Show, back in the day, and, and I'm really proud of those two. Great conversation. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Um, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and I've been off for a week or so, and I won't comment on what's going on just yet. Uh, I know the impeachment's going on, but I don't care about that nigga. I'll be honest with you. He's gone. Whatever. Peace. I'm hardly interested in that. But the thing that's been heavy on my heart, for those of you that know me, is my brother Mark passed away. I think it's two weeks ago now. Man, time flies. He was my little brother, and I loved him very much. He had um, he had just gotten COVID, but he's, his body was already just very weak from a lot of the medical conditions he had gone through, the biggest of which was he had, my brother had renal failure like 25 years ago, and he got a kidney from my sister who turned out to be a perfect match. And he's just been dealing with that for a long time, you know, when you're taking rejection medication for a long period of time, it just wreaks havoc on your body. Just, he'd been in a lot of pain for a number of years, and this was a very, very sad occasion for the entire family. But in some ways, you know, I I am relieved that my brother is not in pain anymore. Though as tragic as this situation is, you just don't get over something like this. Seriously, a part of me is gone with my brother. And for those of you that, that didn't know my brother, he was, oh man, he was such a funny guy. He was so funny and just genuine. You know, he kept it 100% real <laughs> before you know, I even knew what that was. We, we, uh, 
you were very close growing up. There was like a, six of us kids in our house. My brother and I had a room together. And, uh, you know, we'd make each other laugh at night, that type of thing, you know. And we just kind of, you know, just kind of were together for most of our lives in terms of our careers and what we did and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, Mark's personality, he was just, he was so funny. He could just be a character was what his biggest talent was. And he has, there are legendary stories about him in some of the writer's rooms he worked in. And some of those stories were told. We had a Zoom memorial for him uh, the other night. And a couple of writers told those stories and they're really funny. I'm going to post this on Facebook if any of you are interested in, in watching it all. But uh, it's hard to recreate too. He was just a special, special guy. Um, His biggest trait though was his big heart. Mark had the biggest heart. He had the, and he had a temper too, you know, and his temper was many times his frustration with himself sometimes. And I don't know why, because he's the type of kid who would give you just the shirt off his back. He really loved his family, his entire extended family and treated his friends like family too. He was just, just that kind of just pure soul. So anyhow, I just wanted to start the show telling you that I uh, just got a heavy heart right now. I'm thinking about my brother and also thinking about everybody that, you know, has lost someone dear to them this past year. This year has just been just terrible. Uh, my heart goes out to all of you. It's a tough one. Um, and some families have just been devastated, you know, multiple members and that type of thing. So I want you to know that um, I'm thinking about my brother, but I'm also thinking about you guys too. That's, um, you know, I'm kind of at a loss for words. Sorry. I don't have a lot to say about it, but I just wanted to share that with you guys. So, you know, but anyhow, my brother would want me to continue and enjoy what I'm doing, enjoy life and all that. So that's what we will continue to do. And, and that's it. So let's get to the show. We have a message coming up, and like I said, next week <laughs> I'll cover some of what's going on right now, because I know there's a lot and all that stuff you guys probably want to hear from me. But for now, I'm just going to dedicate this to my bro, Mark Edward Wilmore, taken away too soon. Okay, we'll be back in a second with the Lucas Brothers. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, as promised, uh, we are talking to... Man, these uh two of the more talented individuals out on the landscape right now, both in comedy and now making this splash in, I guess, thriller, drama, biopic <laughs> world. It's the Lucas Brothers, Keith and Kenneth Lucas, in their film uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a wonderful film about Fred Hampton and his assassination by the FBI. Welcome to Black on the Air, guys. Nice to see you again. Hey, what's up, brother? Oh, nice to see you, brother. As I told you, I'm so excited, not just for this movie. It's such a story that's been undertold or hardly told, but for you guys too. I love the fact that here are two comedians, you know, you know, comedy writers who are giving us this unbelievable, you know, meal of history and, you know, uh, intrigue and everything. This chapter, this dark chapter in our history too. Uh, congratulations, guys. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's one of those stories. I mean, it's a tough story in general. Yeah, it is. Like, 
anytime you hear it and you you, you absorb it, it just it just makes me cry. So it's definitely like a, you know, I'm just like relieved that you know now more people are going to be able to know about the story and know about Fred at least. How did you guys first uh, hear about this story, and when did you uh, first think about like just doing it as a movie? Was it just something that you heard and just stuck with you in the beginning? So we, uh, you know, we came across Fred's story in college. Actually, it was 2004, and we were taking this African studies course, and it was, uh, you know, the course covered uh, African American history post Reconstruction up until 60s, early 70s. So. Literally, like one of our last chapters was about the Panthers, about the Chicago uh, chapter and how Hampton was assassinated. Uh, they didn't mention anything about William O'Neill, but uh, I was sort of struck by how kind of cruel and, and uh, uh, unusual that, that not unusual, but how cruel the, the state could be in assassinating and how it wasn't really widely known. Like, I mean. I only came across it because of college. Like, I, I, I mean, you would hear the name somewhat, but I never really knew the story until I went to college. So it was always sort of in the back of our heads. So once we got into entertainment, you know, we were like, we want to make this into a film. Uh, we didn't know, we didn't know how to do it, but we were like, once we figure out some of the mechanisms, we're gonna, you know, push to get it made. Sure. And just so people know what the basic uh, uh, story is, uh, Fred Hampton, who's very charismatic leader of the Chicago, I guess you'd call it the Chicago branch of the Black Panther, <laughs> the Black Panther Party. Uh, it's funny that it had branches. It's kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> was uh, pretty much assassinated by the FBI, but part of uh, what gave it this layers is the informant, not just one, but they had several informants that they were actually infiltrating all kinds of black organizations during the 60s. But the telling of this particular informant, William O'Neill, and his involvement with Hampton and his personal involvement is what kind of makes this story even more interesting. Is that right? Right. I mean, you know, so, you know, we found out about Hampton in college. We didn't know anything about William O'Neill. So, you know, once we got into entertainment, we decided to make this a movie. We're like, okay, what's what's the best way to frame this? Mm-hmm. We were we were averse because that's to the challenge it. of the story. It's like right. how we actually you can't just put the facts out on the screen, right? right. How right, do we right, make it right. a movie, right? Right. Exactly, and uh, you know we were we were kind of averse to making like a traditional biopic. We're just sure. like we've seen it before. How can Fred's story is so it's so much more like I just don't think you can capture the essence of Fred in two hours. I just feel like you need a mini you need a mini series. So we we're just like, how can we make the most compelling film? that captures some of the nuances of Fred, but obviously, you know, it's also, you know, an entertaining, not entertainment, but at least a a captivating film. And then we stumbled upon William O'Neill in our research, I think it's around 2012, 2013. And we found this, uh, the transcript of uh, the Eyes on a Prize interview. And we were like, oh, this might be the shape of a film, you know, because he was basically just laying out the whole story, how he got got recruited to become an FBI uh, informant how he infiltrated the Panthers, just like, the, you know, the, the year before Hampton even got assassinated, he was just laying out big events that happened. And we were like, this could be the structure. Of I mean, the yeah, like, like, no, but structurally it was. It was like, you got your first act, this drifter, apolitical, and then you got your second act. You get, I mean, you get the call of action, and then your second act is this guy infiltrating the, the Panthers. And then you have that pull and the push and pull between whether or not he's a Panther or whether 
whether or not he's an FBI agent. And then you have your climax. So it just felt... He was also talking, he was also talking about how Hampton was, you know, building up the Rainbow Coalition and how, how uh, the FBI saw that as a threat and how, uh, you know, they, they were particularly concerned with uh, the Panthers after the shootout with Jake Winters. So, he, again, he, he just laid out a lot of, like, the key moments that sort of we saw it as a, as a good structure for a film. So it's almost like you give us a a portrait of Hampton from an obs- an observer's point of view, rather than an insight portrait in a traditional biopic where we're following Hampton kind of as a protagonist. It's kind of interesting because we kind of almost like we're getting glimpses of Hampton in a sense. Right, but, right, right. But, uh, you know, it's almost more powerful in some ways, especially with Daniel Kaluuya's performance of him. Right. I agree. I, I think it's it's something about like seeing him so mag. You want to see what? Why did they believe that this guy was public enemy number one? Like how right. how do you how do you create that visually? How do you how do you how do you allow for the audience to be like, well, that's a contradiction. This guy is a really good guy. Why is mm-hmm. he being criminalized? And you want the audience to sit with that. And I think when you frame it through Will's eyes, you're allowing the audience to sit with that contradiction. Yeah. which is he's a great orator, a good man, a, a seemingly could be a good father and a good organizer, but yet the state wants to kill him. It's crazy. Now, were you guys, when did you get privy? I read in an article that you read through FBI documents. When did you get privy to those documents and how did you get those documents? Some of the COINTELPRO documents are public. Uh-huh. Uh, a couple of people, I think, uh, Few other people like they filed. Uh, what do they call it, Kenny? The uh, Freedom, of, Freedom of yeah, Information yeah, yeah. Act, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So a couple of other people had, had already done that. So there were a lot of files on uh, Contel Pro. We didn't really get access to the William O'Neill files, but Will Burson had access to the uh, William O'Neill files, and I think that's because someone filed the uh, Freedom of Information. And Jeffrey yeah. Haas, Jeffrey yeah. Haas, the attorney. For Fred Hampton and the family. Well, I don't know if he was a family's attorney, but he was Hampton's attorney. Mm-hmm. He filed a Freedom of Information Act to uh, get access to William O'Neill's files. He put mm-hmm. them in. He put them into the assassination of Fred Hampton. That book. He updates it every, I think, every year or so. We got Roy Mitchell's files too, right? Right. What What were some of the more surprising things that you guys found out while you were researching the film? I mean, a lot of the shit about William O'Neill kind of blew my mind. I mean, um, he was pretty young when he was recruited, right? 17. 17 years wow, old. 17. <laughs> yeah, he was a kid. He was a kid. Wow. Yeah. They were it's, all kids, man. They were, they were all kids. And that, yeah. that's, that, I think that that's one of the, the more, you know, alarming uh, mm-hmm. facts about it. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm 35 now, but when yeah. I first heard about Hampton, I was a little young, so I didn't quite understand, like, just the gravity that the fact that it was like grown men yeah. <laughs> killing teenagers. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like teenagers were a threat. To, I mean, Hoover was 70 years old and he was afraid mm. of a 21 year old. It's just like, it's crazy. Blows my mind. I read about like William O'Neill, like he constructed like a fake electric chair to <laughs> torture. Uh-huh. He was like, he was a, like a, just a, a firebrand. Like he would do things that just didn't make any sense. But now uh-huh. looking back, perfect sense he was trying to get the he was trying to get the pants to commit more terroristic acts yeah there's one scene in the movie where 
he kind of brings them like some explosives or something like that. One of the to blow up city hall, and they're like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" It, it <laughs> right, almost seemed right. like like he was overplaying his hand or that type of thing, you know. But the, but what's crazy is that he was like that. He was he was even even crazier, you know, yeah. based on like you know eyewitness reports. Like he was um, he was like really he was a maniac. But it seems as if folks probably just thought. I mean, I think some people probably were suspicious of him, but mm-hmm. you know, I guess if you don't have you know actual proof, it's hard to to say. What's interesting about this film is there is the villain, which is the FBI, the which is a clear villain. Um, mm-hmm. The sub villain being the Jesse Plemons character. Let's say <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's the hero who is Daniel Kaluuya. And yet we are viewing the film through O'Neill's eyes and we're not sure what to make of him. He's right. he, he comes off, I think, sympathetic. And part of that is Lakeith Stanfield's, I mean, performance, which is he's so magnetic in whatever he does. But is he to be I mean, what are we supposed to think of him in this? I'm not I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think about him. He's in the mushy middle there in this right. film, like the way you talk about him personally He's on the on a side, it feels like, but in the film, right, right. he's a little. It's a little bit more complex. Was that right. a, intentional or accidental, or is it a product of just going through the process and making a film that it just comes out like that? Yeah, I think I think what we wanted to do was present the case that the two guys were both manipulated by forces mm-hmm. uh, bigger than them, but one was a, a bit more, you know. But dare I say a coward and he, he took the easy way out and the other one mm-hmm. was actually way more of a hero and and, and fought against the various uh, f- forces that were, you know, compelled against him. So I think what you wanted to do was just see those two different reactions and, and make mm-hmm. it about what, what I mean, I, personally, I think he's a coward and he's a, he's a, you know, not a hero and he has no like redeemable qualities. But I do think I do believe that there is a through a through line where you can say he was a victim, even if he was as even if he was sort of awful, he was still kind also, of victim. also it's like he's such a pathological liar. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, even if even if you want to hate him, he he's charismatic enough to to sort of make you feel a little sympathy, but then you realize, mm-hmm. oh no, this guy is a pathological liar. He's, he's one of the worst human beings ever. Watching it yesterday, I did, like I had the realization, like he mm-hmm. might be one of the most despicable characters in cinema history because he doesn't have, he's so ambivalent, you know, he doesn't have a point of view. They always say mm-hmm. that about like in, in, in film or, or TV, like your, your main character has to have a POV that's strong. And I'm like, this mm-hmm. is one of the few characters. I'm like, I don't know where he stands at all. Even at the very end, when you see the actual footage, he believes that that he he mm-hmm. fought for the cause. He believes that he he had a point of view, and that was mm-hmm. clearly not the case. So, well, that's he's a, he's a tough character to crack. Yeah, because it does invite the question: Who is the villain here? the The seventeen year old black kid who's being manipulated by a powerful force like the FBI, you know, someone who probably is very gullible and is, you know, is makes his Faustian bargain is. Is he really the villain? I mean, it is a good question, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I won't say, well, even though it's history, it's a big gut punch at the end when you learn about what happens to him. And I'll just save that for people watching it. But uh, but it does uh, kind of what you were just saying, Keith. I mean, it does make it seem like he believes he's the worst person, you know. I, I was going to say, like, you know, as much as I, I agree with your point, like, you're 17, 
Yeah. You know, he was being manipulated by larger forces. But then I always think about Hampton. He was also very, very young. Very young. Yeah. And he was also in a situation where he was about to receive jail time. And instead yeah. of, you know, sacrificing the people, he was willing to sacrifice himself. And it's like, I don't know if it's just like a, people were just built differently. Uh, and because, you know, they're from the same place, same area, same yeah. generation, but they just had diametrically uh, opposed beliefs. Yeah, I think I think that's why it's so telling. Like, you know, Hampton was presented with five years, similar to O'Neill, five years, and he could have run and, and, and he could have taken the money and he could have done everything that O'Neill did. And he did. I think that those those moments are, are sort of exemplify when you see juxtaposed to Williams actions. It's like, Oh, this is what a hero does. A hero takes his time. A hero turns down the money and a hero serves the people. And what a villain does is he does the opposite of that. And I think seeing those, seeing them in the same frame, it's like now the audience has to like, you know, is he the hero? Is he the villain? Like we know who yeah. the hero is. Hamp. Right. Yeah. Hero who unfortunately dies and doesn't accomplish his goals. So it's like, mm-hmm. from a story standpoint, William does accomplish his goals. He's just internally beat up on the inside, but he, he does get the job done. I mean, yeah. As sad yeah. as it is. Unfortunately, you know, and it is a complex time that I believe is undertowed in the civil rights movement um, because the, the civil rights movement at large was a nonviolent movement, you know, but then you had. You know, there were some fractures towards uh, as we were getting closer to King's death, you know, where people like Stokely Carmichael and uh, even Eldridge Cleaver, the, one of the founders of the Black Panthers, you know, who were saying, no, 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 we took, you know, quote Shakespeare, we need to take arms against the sea of troubles <laughs> by opposing in them. You know, there was a whole different feel. So there was a fracture in the Black community itself about the correct approach. And, <laughs> And contemporaneously, I know a lot of Blacks didn't support the Black Panthers because they thought they were radicals, you know. Mm-hmm. So it it is kind of interesting. I mean, we we don't, the film doesn't deal so much with that part, but it, it is the interesting look as to how people could not necessarily agree with the Black Panthers, right, right, but, right, right. but still have sympathy for someone like Fred Hampton. Right, you know? right. Like I remember as a kid, because I'm, I'm an old fuck, you know, I can remember, you know, free Huey Newton, you know, that kind of stuff, right. but not even knowing who Huey Newton was. But I'm like, yeah, but he's got to be free. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then being scared. Damn, those niggas got guns, man. They're not kidding around. You know? <laughs> so it is it is a layered it is a layered history uh, contemporaneously. You know, in the rear view, some things seem a pretty, pretty clear cut, you know. Right. I mean, it's a, we're from North New Jersey, so it's like it's a very complex city and you get you get so many different shades of, of African-Americans. And then I think you yeah. sort of get that in this film as well. You know, like even with Hampton, like the presumption is that, you know, he's it's Hampton. He's a panther. He, he must be a terrorist. But then you mm-hmm. see him like, oh, no, he's actually feeding babies. He wants to mm-hmm. build a medical clinic. And this is this is the stuff we learned through research. And you're yeah. like, oh, wait, this this is a very different kind of Panther that has been portrayed throughout the history of cinema. And mm-hmm. then you you learn more about Will and you're like, OK, this guy was a snitch. He was a rat. He was a mm-hmm. turncoat. And then you're like, oh, wait, well, he was 17. He was a kid. He was, mm-hmm. you know, so there's always so much you're learning about the, the internal strife within the black community. But it's, there are always these larger forces 
that are at play that you have to you have to account for. So you you can't dismiss the role of the FBI and mm-hmm. just fucking things up in our community. Absolutely. One of the things that they did uh, was to pit the leaders against each other. Uh, right. It's what they did with Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton, where they had fake letters and things mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. and I don't I don't know if they ever uh, united again. You know. Over that nope. riff, that that was all made up. It's just fascinating to see the story, you know. Right. It's so crazy. I mean, and even with uh, you know, I, I I feel, and I'm sure that it'll be proven correct, was that the the media manipulated conflict between King and X. I mean, I think that, I think they just uh, I think the media for a very long time and probably still is uh, uh, is likely has a very very close relationship with the intelligence community, and I think uh, the intelligence community in the '60s they were very terrified of the, the black progression to freedom. And so they did everything that they could to sort of, I don't know, just tear everything down. Like, I mean, literally, I mean, riots and, and, and the assassinations and, and all that shit. I feel like it was sort of manipulated by, and I, now I sound conspiratorial, but no, <laughs> it's no. like, you sound, you see, it's like, I'm going crazy. Like the government's behind everything. And it, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, kind of like that. Like, as as bad as it sounds, it's like yeah, the government's really fucked with the black community. Like it's mm-hmm. it's, it's like the severe psychological and physical fucking harm that that has led to like years of trauma. And mm-hmm. it's like there's no conversation about it. It's like we're we're just yeah. supposed to accept that the the brute force of the of our military apparatus and our intelligence community has has been devastating, and we're just like supposed to accept it. It's very strange. Yeah, it's very and, strange. And the paranoia of J. Edgar Hoover. Um, who, you know, the term even Black Messiah was a term that he coined, uh, that he was afraid, he was afraid of the Black Messiah. Because what's interesting about this too, and I don't know if you guys found this in your research, was they were happy to pit Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver against each other and to try to destroy them from within. But they felt compelled to assassinate a 21-year-old Fred Hampton. Like, Like, why was, why do you think Hampton was so much more of a threat than these other leaders who who started the the Panther Party. Hampton was a threat because he was actually getting a lot of things done, you know, uh-huh. on a, on a, on a on a community level, right? Like right. he was he started the free breakfast program. Well, he didn't start it himself. Well, he, he was, was started he was in Oakland, to, right? Yeah, he didn't start it himself, mm-hmm. but he was able to like make it a, a prominent uh, factor in in Chicago. But also, he built mm-hmm. the he helped get the the health clinic built. Right. Uh, and you know his ability to unite different forces. Uh, you know, being able to 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 reach out to to uh, the young lord and the young patriots. He was just a better speaker than all of them. Like he was, yeah, hands down, easily the best orator uh, in the group. I was listening to, I was watching this old uh, Black Panther video, and I think it was Cleaver spoke, and then uh, I think Rush spoke. Oh, yeah, and, was it still speak? Bobby Rush. Was it still mm-hmm. Oh no, it was Rush. It was definitely Rush. And then, uh, okay. and then Hampton spoke, and I was like, "Oh, yeah. he's just hands down, just yeah, he's the closer." You know, and when you think about yeah, the closer, like, he's, 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 yeah. you can't follow Fred Hampton. <laughs> Who right. wants to follow? He's almost a combination of King and X together. You know, right? Where he I had know. that that hard cutting edge that Malcolm X had. You know, Malcolm was a little more measured in his approach. You know. And was clearly an intellectual, especially by the time he was a leader. And King was the charisma of his voice alone, you know, right. 
was what drew people in. And Hampton seemed to have both of that. It could be the power of that in this young kid was probably the biggest threat to the government at that time. And I mean, look, I think the FBI, personally, I think they killed King. I think after he killed King, after Hoover killed King, he was bloodthirsty. And all of the all of the fucking uh, the way that they kill Hampton, you see those same elements in in King's assassination with the informants and then the, the corrupt police officers, the, the manufacturing of violence with the Memphis riots right before the assassination. Like, I think a lot of it was a lot of the MO was exactly the same. So I, I like Hoover, especially in his old age. If you if you read this book from William Sullivan, who was the third in command of the FBI, and he was also killed later on, but he was saying that around late stage Hoover, he was losing his mind. Right. He was already kind of crazy, but by but by the time like he's getting closer to death, I mean obviously he's he's like right off the deep end, and he was obsessed with King. He was obsessed with black people. It was very strange. Yeah. Very yeah, strange his obsession with African Americans. Yeah, and the thing is, is that as the head of the FBI, he would have actual information. So this right. paranoia is completely made up in his mind. Like, like he would Without know. A doubt. Yeah, you know, like yeah. he he hears King talking on all those tapes. Yeah, he knows he's not this yeah. nefarious individual. That's what's it. Right. What's fascinating about this is how much he made up in his mind. Yeah, I mean that's what's terrifying about it. It was like it was crazy guy essentially projecting all of these things onto these black guys and then telling people to take care of it, like snuff these guys out. Like it's a mob, it's like mob boss type shit. Like he's just like, he was bloodthirsty. He has some deep seated issues that he needed therapy and he probably needed to be in prison, but he was uh, the leader of the criminal justice system. That's the, that's the irony. Now there were apparently other FBI uh, informants uh, in uh, this circle. Do you know if there were black FBI agents or like O'Neill, just informants recruited by the FBI? Were there black FBI agents during that time period? Oh, yeah. 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 That yeah, I don't yeah. know. So there were actual people who worked for the FBI, uh, black agents, as opposed to just informants hired by the FBI. Because there is a distinction there, right? For sure. I don't think there yeah. were any at least from my research, I didn't read about any FBI agents who infiltrated the Panthers. Okay. My guess is that they probably, maybe they had some, I wouldn't be surprised because it, even with Malcolm X, they had some police officers who infiltrated the, uh, exactly. It wasn't a actual, because they're kind of keeping their fingers a little clean as possible. Right. right? But I know, yeah. I know with, with King's assassination, you know, the guy hovering over his body, like immediately post shot, the Jesse person Jackson? Was, no, not Jesse. It's another guy. <laughs> Jesse's pointing. Jesse's pointing, but there's a, there's a person yeah. hovering over his body. That sure. person was a Memphis police officer who who would eventually become a, a CIA agent. Uh, uh-huh. So there were he was he infiltrated the invaders. The invaders was like they were like the 1968 Memphis equivalent of the Black Panthers. So they uh-huh. were infiltrated by uh, local police officers. So I mean, it's very possible that FBI informants. FBI agents were informing on, on the civil I'm sure that they were informing on the civil rights uh, mm-hmm. without a doubt. And uh, I saw that in the film, I guess in the making of the film, there was also the cooperation of uh, Hampton's widow and son. Mm-hmm. Did you guys meet with her while you were first developing it all, or did they come in later in the process? Yeah, we know when we, so when we were writing the story, we hadn't met with her. 
and after after Will and Shaka finished the script, still hadn't met with her. Mm-hmm. She didn't come in. We didn't meet with her until uh, Coogler and and Charles King came on board. Okay. And were you guys involved in those uh, sessions at that time? We didn't. We, we didn't meet her till we got the set. I didn't. Oh, okay. I didn't meet her. Okay. I think Did it you... was ma- most, mostly the cast and the director who okay. met with them first. And then we met with them once they got, you know, signed on. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Well, it's interesting how much this uh, kind of resonates with the Breonna Taylor shooting from last year, too. Right. Um, do you feel that when audiences see this, there's this contemporary feel to this, even though it happened like 50 years ago? Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, go ahead. The Breonna, Breonna Taylor shit is just awful. Just but look yeah, at it. Terrible. Look at it. They, they accuse her of facilitating some criminal activity, which right. in this case... Drugs, and we 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 can talk about the the, the criminalization of black bodies through right. mass incarceration and how right. fucking frivolous uh, these drug laws are, and that you and that you get the death penalty, and that right. you get the death right. penalty for right. fucking selling right. drugs. So that's even problem. Right. Even even if she was, and I she was not, but even right. if she was in the commission of selling drugs, she doesn't deserve to die. You don't you don't get the death penalty, right? So that that directly relates to Hampton and but I think it all directly relates to Hoover. I mean, this guy controlled criminal justice in America for fifty years. So his DNA is all over, you know, all of these policies that we see from mass incarceration to the war on drugs. It all stems from Hoover's madness, essentially. And it's just a fruit of a poisonous tree. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, I, I think that there's a larger issue of the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. criminalizing legitimate black behavior, be that uh, free speech, be that sleeping at home with your uh, boyfriend. Even if she had drugs on her, I still think that that's not, that's not an activity that deserves no, death. Of course not. But no. Our system and our current, uh, in the modern sort of carcinal state, it's okay to kill black people for doing essentially, you know, minor things or even legal things. It's justified. Yeah. And for me, what's interesting also about the, the Black Panthers in this is black militancy has always been punished and never been accepted. Like if you look at the history of literature or, or just, you know, stories of uprisings, how we always admire the group that is oppressed and they stand up and they fight. 
You know, yeah. it's the story of the United States, you know, and every, and we admire that, you know, whether they, and it, it doesn't matter the manner in which they fight too, whether it's with force or the guns, right. but we love stories when people get up off the ground and they fight for what's right. But yep. blacks are one of the few groups that that's not allowed. You know, right. like, could you imagine after the church shooting in Alabama, if blacks had gotten AKs and guns and just went, went into white churches and started mowing people down and said, how does right. this feel, my right. brother? <laughs> you know, not that I'm advocating that, but I mean, that's... Right. Yeah. right. You know? right. It's like, how does this feel? You know? right. right, right. No, I, you know... I mean, that's kind of what that energy was, you know, of we've had enough of this. How, how would you like it if we actually defended ourselves with Mike the way that every other group gets to do, you know? Right, right. I mean, you see... A bunch of white people stormed the Capitol because they feel like their freedom has been uh, a compromise. So they stormed the Capitol. But, you know, African-Americans do something similar. We know what would have happened. Like, it would have been a totally different reaction from, uh, from, from law enforcement. And it's been that way since we've been fighting for our rights. It's like, it's been, it's just two, two, two justice systems where, you know, our rights don't I think even exist. I think there's a justice system and then there is an injustice system. I, I wouldn't even want to call what they do for us a justice system. It's a, it, they met out injustice on a daily basis. It's like uh, uh, the very notion of the drug war is just a, a, an unjust policy that's been, uh, you know, put into law. And the, right, right, the right. results of it are, are just obviously going to be unjust. Right, right, right. That's fair. That's fair. It, and it is interesting, too, how, you know, even with the term Black Messiah and during that time in the movement, you know, you had leaders and it was easier for, you know, people who were against it to just try to take out a leader or that. And you have, you look at Black Lives Matter now, there's no like discernible leader, you know, do you think, <clears throat> do you think that's a good thing for the modern movement or do you think it, it would help if it had like a charismatic leader or something? Right, right, right. I mean, I think the leadership has been a bit, bit more decentralized. I mean, there are I think they're more lo local leaders. You know, mm -hmm. before there were national leaders and right. we don't really have that as much because things have been so decentralized. But I know there's a lot of organizing happening across the country and there are a lot of, there's, there's effective leadership on the ground for sure. I wonder if things would be different if we had a, you know, a, a Fred Hampton, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, maybe some people see AOC as that leader. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's the case, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if things would be different if you had a, you know, a deeply charismatic leader who was who, who brought people together. I, I wonder how, how that would have how that would affect BLM. What are you thinking? No, I agree. We, there is a, a, a lack of, of a centralized leadership. I think I think I think uh, radical groups now or more militant groups now. The fear is if you concentrate uh, leadership into a, a sort of a localized group then they'll just take out the leadership and then your, your organization has to scramble. So, I mean, there's, there's an argument for leadership, a more centralized source of leadership, and then there's an argument for decentralization. Um, yeah, they probably want to avoid the mistakes of the past. You know, you don't, you don't want the leader to, the, the, the death of a leader to destabilize the movement. So it's probably been a, a, a move away from, you know, that sort of centralized leadership, which might be a smart tactic. 
Well, there's centralized leadership, and then there's personality leadership. You know, right, right, that's right. centralized within a person's personality. But I think it it has lacked some centralized leadership in terms of messaging. I think you know, because some yeah, of it, I think right. it would do it would do well for the organization if the messaging was a little clearer. You know, because I do believe that. I mean, we're all writers here. Words are important, you know. Uh, you know, the words that you choose and the words that you put out there are very important to movements, especially mass movements, when you don't have a lot of time for nuance and discussions, and, right, right, right. you know, and those those sorts of things, you know. But, I mean, I guess it's like, yeah, you see what happened over the summer with the defund the, the police and how, you know, that, that sort of, I mean, it was a very succinct phrase but it definitely, you know, caused a lot of, you know, disagreement among among the groups, the many groups who weren't very clear on what it meant. You know, did it mean abolishing the police or did it mean, you know, taking the funding away from police to, you know, put it into programs that are, are that are less militaristic? Uh, I mean, maybe with a with a with, you know, centralized leader who was charismatic and had that personality, the, the messaging would have been a little clearer. Ultimately, history is going to going to sort of judge us on our legislative successes, right? Like the 60s sort of defined by the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And then with Lincoln, you got the Emancipation Proclamation in 13, 14, 15. So we're going to be judged based on legislative uh, successes. And defunded police is not uh, a helpful, I don't think, I don't think it's going to get us closer to the legislative success we need to sort of define yeah, but, I, but I do believe like a, you do need a jolt, you need a shock, you need a, you know, it may not be the, it may not be the clearest message, but I think that the sentiment and the anger behind it is certainly valid. I think that people want to see reform. Yeah, I agree. The, the emotion and the sentiment and the rationale behind it all sound, but we're talking about convincing, uh, you know, conservatives are, are convincing moderates why they should take action against sustained police brutality we need we need a legislative success and mm-hmm. certain phrases a certain rhetoric won't get us closer to that so if it's if pragmatically right. speaking if that rhetoric doesn't get us closer to the legislative success then we have to question the the so the, the question becomes are we getting closer to it with that rhetoric rhetoric fair, yeah, fair, saying certain things i mean it, it could push it could push the conversation forward because sometimes Rhetoric is good uh, in uniting people and sloganeering is what I like to call that type of thing. But then there are policy prescriptions, which are different. That's act. Right. That's actually asking for action, you know, some specific action, you know, and defund right. the police was doing trying to do both of those, trying to be a slogan to unite people, but also a policy prescription. You know, right. mm-hmm. and many, right. many times the prescriptions can be a little more layered, you know, and so you're right, right, that's right. why slogans many times are a little more vague and meant to, you know, just rally people. And then you get into right. the rooms and you figure out the actual policies. Yeah. You know? yeah. But this was like, no, this the fun. The police is both niggas. You know, <laughs> I want everybody <laughs> yelling this in the street and it's the policy. Right. <laughs> but the thing is, when I was when I was marching, when I was out there, I yeah. was screaming it too. Yeah, that's what I mean. It was doing both. Yeah. 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 So I know it's not probably going to get anything done, but I'm like, I, I'm saying it and I feel sure. it. You know, I get yeah. it. Yeah. When you feel something, you just you just you just got to say it and yeah. figure out figure out the consequences afterward. I mean, I, right. I think that it sparked the conversation about how we how to address 
how to uh, address police reform. And I'm like, uh-huh. again, I don't know if it moved us closer to where we needed to be, but it, it definitely sparked the conversation that I think needed to needed to happen. Yeah, Correct. definitely. Because we know it's a, it's not just an issue of police; it's an issue of community too. Like, how do we, oh, right. Right. how do we get these communities stronger and and right. you know get get them thriving a little bit more? You know, help the crime rates and those types of things to lessen lessen the interactions with police in general and that type of thing. You know, we do spend a ton of money on 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 law enforcement. I mean, we spend a lot of money, and some of the some of that money can go towards you know uh, community building and you know, social services that can, you know, help in terms of you know, health and education. Like there is, there, is a, there is a legitimate discussion to have about allocation of resources and how we decide to spend our money. I think that that's right. a legitimate conversation. And one doesn't necessarily have to come from the other. That's just, right. The, right. that's the right. particular math equation somebody made up. But, you know, <laughs> no, absolutely. It that's could right. be fund right. the community could be the phrase. I don't care right. where the right. money comes from. Take it from anybody. Take it from the mayor. How about to fund the mayor? I don't know. Why does it got to come from the police? I don't care where it comes from. Just fund the community. How about that? <laughs> yeah, the Blasio can lose. Can take, exactly. Can take he doesn't need to live in that, in that mansion. <laughs> fund the community, you know. Uh, yeah, it is. It's interesting how these things go. Just from a history. I'm sure you guys probably learned a lot doing this and everything. It's always a, it's such an interesting history lesson when you do these types of things. Do you have any take on this was, I mean, the movement and civil rights and activism was so huge in the 60s and early 70s. And then it seemed to kind of go away for a while. Why, why do you think that is? Like the later part of the 70s, you don't see the same kind of energy in college campuses. You know, you, you don't see uh, young leaders emerging. You know, some of the older ones are still around, you know, but but you don't have those younger people. And it, it didn't seem to, to catch fire again until almost recently with you know, with the youth movement. Why, why do you think that is? I think uh, war and drugs, Nixon started locking up and niggas. And, and I think, uh, I think I also think that uh, white liberals got older and mm. they, they, they went into a second phase of their lives. White liberals stopped caring as they got older. Well, once the Viet, once the Vietnam war went away, there wasn't that big target to. I also think like, you know, the, the black middle class started to become a bit more robust um, yes. mm-hmm. and, that, and I don't know if that was because of affirmative action and, you know, you had more black right. people entering, you know, you know, law and, and coming out of education and, too. Sure. Coming out of education. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, there started to be like gradual changes. And, uh, yeah. I think you, you saw a lot of our leaders get killed. And I'm like, I think that yeah. deterred some people from like speaking up after you hear about a Fred Hampton and a mm-hmm. Uncle Max and a Martin Luther King, you're like, all right, maybe we should try another alternative. I'm not trying to right. get shot by comedy instead <laughs> yes <laughs> i hear the improv has some open spots <laughs> let, let me write jokes about this shit instead of writing firebrand speeches <laughs> it's kind of interesting because you're right because i would be the the demo for that person and yet i found the way of expression through jokes which is kind of right. interesting right. like like i was looking yeah it's funny because i can look at myself even though i you know, was was weaned on that teat of activism. You know, by the time I came of age, I was looking at Richard Pryor for expression. You know, right, of, right, right, of right. What is what is the right. expression right now? You know, and it was it was comedy at that time. You know, it was people like Dick Gregory who I looked at, and those kind of people. It's 
kind of interesting. Yeah, right? I mean, because Richard Pryor sort of became the, I mean, he was the voice in the 70s. I mean, if, if Dr. King and Malcolm, they were the voice of the 60s, Richard was certainly the, he sort of like, he was the speaker. He was the person that people were listening to, and he, he used comedy. More. Think about it, though. You have you have these guys, Fox, uh, Richard, and they're they're observed they're observing the sixties. Dick Gregory, and they're observing the sixties. They're like these things getting killed. And even Red Fox was friends with Michael Mack. So I was like, they, I think they took that anxiety and they're like, look, the reaction to that is going to be joke telling. Like we got to survive. Like the police military apparatus they're not going to change they're going to kill us if we speak outside of yeah because even dick gregory stopped doing comedy you know there wasn't any black political comedy during that time richard Pryor was a cultural comedian. he was talking about his culture you know and that's what was the revolution the revolutionary aspect of his act was how honest he was about it you know you know to have an album called that nigga's crazy was revolutionary Right. And it was so personal and intimate. Like, yes, exactly. You know, he was speaking about himself, but it was it was almost universal to the black experience. It was very. He really like knocked it out out of the park in terms of being able to critique culture and critique yes. society, but keep it intimate and keep it personal. And and about and looking at himself too, you know, right. and his his people. Right. Yeah, and the few comments he had were just funny. Like I remember him saying he hated Jerry West because <laughs> he was so good. It was like, fuck Jerry West, man. But, he, but in saying that, he was saying how much he, he admired him, you know, because right. he was so good. I thought that was one of the funniest racial commentaries. Like, I'm forced to admire this white man and it's killing me, you know. <laughs> it's killing me because he's so good. <laughs> uh, do you guys have any, uh, any plans to do more of this stuff now that you've gone down this road? Uh, uh, I know you're doing more comedy things, of course, but what, uh, any more this type of thing, you think? Yeah, I mean, we're uh, we're developing some ideas. Uh, I've, we, I spoke about the William Sullivan uh, mm-hmm. sort of issue with Ernest Withers and King and, and FDR. I mean, I have to, <laughs> sorry, Hoover. FDR, yeah. FDR. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's this, like a really good Cointel Pro kind of like Godfather 2 styled movie where you look at King's assassination from 67 mm-hmm. to 68 and you look at the, you know, the house that, that they were investigating, uh, uh, assassination mm-hmm. 1977, mm-hmm. and you can examine those two parallel stories and, and Sullivan's involved with both. Sullivan was very active in trying to get King killed, but then mm-hmm. Sullivan's was sort of that weighs on his conscience and he's like, he's going to testify against, uh, Hoover in the seventies, and then some, suddenly he gets killed, and I'm like, I feel like there's a pretty interesting story there. So yeah. we've been thinking. Yeah. Do you think the business has opened up a little bit more to to tell these types of stories? Because I know you guys probably faced a lot of resistance when you were first pitching this, right? Oh yeah, I mean, when we first started pitching uh, our Hampton story, it was rejections across the mm-hmm. board. But mm-hmm. I do believe with the success of Judas... Did they think he uh, was the, the creator of the Hampton Inns? Like, they weren't sure who was... <laughs> Who's I this Hampton? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we tell the Hilton story? It's much more interesting. Why don't you want to tell the story of the Hampton Inns? <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. I do believe that with the success of Judas, opportunities will open up. I, I, might, be, I might be being naive, but... Uh, I, I think so. To, you definitely uh, are. <laughs> I'm probably being naive. I'm probably being naive. 
Uh, but you know, to see it get done definitely yeah. gives me more hope that it can be done. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm not, I'm not as, uh, I'm not as disillusioned with the process. Are you guys headed into the directorial lane? Yeah, I think, I think we're going, we're going to take a at it. I think that's great. I think you should, you should guys. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see that. Um, Remember, sometimes a brother is good at doing small roles here and there. Just remember that. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we ever told you, but, you know, you were, you've been like a huge influence on us. I mean, oh, thanks, of, like, you know, just that. like everything you've done in terms of like going from stand up, but then transitioning to writing, but still yeah. sticking with performing, just like being just, you know, doing everything. Yeah. Right. It was sort of like a, blue, a blueprint for us. So. Well, we just wanted to thank you for, for being here. Oh, of course. Well, we've, it's funny because we've never had permission to do that from the industry world. We've always been like pigeonholed into one small thing. And right. I, I was inspired by white and black. Like Keenan Ivory Wayans contemporaneously was a huge inspiration saying, oh man, we can do our own shit. You know, right. this is right. fantastic. And I was like, and I make conscious decisions like to stop being a staff writer. I got to do my own shit now, you know, and doing things like that, you know. And my other inspiration was Carl Reiner, actually, you know, knowing yeah. that in the business, you don't have to be you don't have to be thought of one thing. You can do just whatever you're interested in. Just, right. you know, why not direct a movie? Why not be a showrunner? You could be a performer, too. But Carl right. Reiner was, was still on stage. Like he not on stage necessarily, but he could get up and tell a story for half an hour and be the funniest thing in the world. Like he was still a performer. It was right. it was amazing the type of career that he had, you know. I've always been inspired by that. So I'm always trying to push brothers like you to stay out there and, and keep doing it. That's why I love that you're in this in the in this genre lane. I think it's fantastic, you know. Yeah, it's all about just like thinking out ways to just like, you know, expand the craft but also know you know like don't limit yourself and exactly do, do as much as you can do i mean it, it should be a very rewarding career i mean stand up exactly opens up so many doors that's correct I, i'm of the belief that stand-up comedians we can do anything like it's kind of true i feel stand-ups are the most talent like not obviously they're not very all talented. of them, <laughs> all of them. Yeah. i've had my most engaging conversations I've, I've met the most like amazing people who just they can tell a joke. They can write a scene. They can direct a scene. They can act in a scene. Like you just do everything. And so it's like, I don't know. I, I'm always like floored by how talented and how genius a lot of stand-up comedians are. Well, one thing that it does teach you, and you guys are in the right, you're just at the right age right now, is you're an entrepreneur when you're doing stand-up comedy. Right, you know, right. You're doing your own thing. You're managing your own business, you know? Right. And you determine the material you're going to do, you direct it, you perform it, you do all these things of management. And so that gives you, I think, a lot of confidence. If those are your goals, you're, you're fearless when you go to writer's room. That's easy at that point. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> right. A writer's room? Wait, you guys are pitching jokes. I could do this shit all day. This is what I do <laughs> in restaurants at three in the morning. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but, uh, there's nothing as scary as stand-up. Like, show running is never as scary as doing stand-up, you know? Right. Stand-up is the most horrifying. I mean, oh, it's like you're literally standing in front of a stage of a bunch of strangers, and you're like, you got to make them laugh. And if you don't make them laugh, they can boo you off the stage. It's like, it's horrifying. And it's never the same. Like, you can have you can have a killer show. You're like, oh, shit, I'm at the top of my game. I, I never got this shit. <laughs> in a very yeah. day, like, oh no! Like they're, they're, they don't think any of this is funny. 
Yeah. One of the most telling things we were talking about prior. Did you guys ever see Live and Smoking? Yeah. Yeah. Great. He did Great. not. He did not win over that crowd. <laughs> he I did mean, not. He did not. And it is fascinating to see Richard Pryor basically bummed. And with material that was very questionable, too. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's talking about, like, sucking guys' dicks and stuff like that. It's like, damn, Richard, you sure you want to? This is the early 70s, Richard Pryor. You know, you sure you want to? People just heard Bill Cosby talking about pulling covers over his head, hiding from monsters. You want to go right to going down on guys in a brothel. That's what you want to do. That's the bridge. <laughs> Crazy. But that but that opened him up to just talk about anything. He was so fearless. Yeah, he was fearless, man. He just he didn't hide I mean, I mean, I don't want to say he didn't hide anything, but he definitely left it all out there, man. It's 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 remarkable that he was saying all that shit in the seventies. I mean It really was. I mean, I don't think we'll ever see that type of thing again. But uh Judas and the Black Messiah, you guys, go see this film. Well, it's on HBO Max, right? And it's in theaters too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so if, you're, so. if you're willing to if you're willing to die, go see the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You gotta are you gonna are you gonna die watching a movie? I'm not gonna oh wait a second, I might die watching a movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh the great Fred Hampton speech in there. Um and the great Fred Hampton who died much too soon, charismatic leader. Congrats to uh Keith and Kenneth Lucas, the Lucas brothers. You guys are going to be seeing a lot from these guys. They're so talented. And once again, hey, Oscar buzz too. I'm giving you all the love possible. Oh, thank you, brother. Get thank that you, Oscar brother. Buzz now, are you guys credited in this properly also? I'm just looking yeah. out for... Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a story by have, credit, right? We have, we have a okay, writer, good. writing credit and a producing credit. Good, 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 good. Okay. Yeah. All that. Making sure that's in order. All right. <laughs> uh well, thanks for joining us, guys. Go see it, guys. Judas and the Black Messiah. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, brother. This is awesome, man. 